I remember as a small boy, and yes, it takes a good memory to go back that far. But I remember as a small boy hearing my daddy as he would speak of plans for the future. And he would say, well, you know, if the Lord's willing, we're going to go such and such or we're going to do something. Or people would say, J.R., I'd like for you all to come over to the house Saturday night for supper. He said, well, Lord willing, we'll be there. That was not just a pious cliché. It was His clear recognition that the future was in the hand of God. James would approve of that viewpoint. In our text, James asks the question of what is our life? He actually prefaces the text and he says, Go to now you that say today or tomorrow will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know what not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Now listen to it. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. James says our life's a vapor. It appears for a little time, like the morning fog, and then vanishes away. James is giving a warning to those who make great assumptions about the future and make those assumptions with no thought of God. Life and death are in the hands of God. And for every one of us, life is a very fragile thing. A matter of seconds. A matter of yards. That was all that stood between you and a crash on the highway. I'll never forget one night Matt and I were in his car. They were having a gospel meeting up at James and Matt and I left center in his car and we were going to go up to James that night. And about halfway up there, a dog ran in front of Matt. And he hit his brakes and he swerved and the next thing I know, we're driving in the southbound lane. And he corrects and the next thing I know, we're over in the ditch on the northbound side. And then the next thing I know, we're turning sideways and thank goodness it was soft soil and popped the tires before the car rolled. Now you know you've all talked, we've all heard about those split seconds when your life flashes before your eyes or you think about something. In those moments that that car was doing that, it was a matter of seconds. You know the one thought that went through my mind? I really wish I had buckled my seatbelt. But sometimes it's just a matter of a split second or a momentary thing that stands between us and a blinding automobile crash. A tiny microbe 
so small your naked eye can't see it has called so many men and women from the broken toys of this life. History is filled with dramatic illustrations of how fragile life really is. Of the unexpected nature with which our summons might come to end our lives. Think back in your mind, it's been almost 30 years ago now. But think about all those people that went to work in the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. They went to work that morning. Just like any other morning. They kissed their spouse goodbye. They might have talked about what they were going to do that night for supper. They dropped the kids off at school or at daycare there at the building. And there was every indication as life started that morning it was going to be just another day. 168 people never made it home that night. 19 of them were children. Or what about what happened 22 years ago tomorrow? Tomorrow marks the anniversary of what we call 9-11. The greatest terrorist attack that ever took place on U.S. soil. Franklin Roosevelt said so many years ago that December 7, 1941 was a day that would live in infamy for another generation September 11, 2001 was a day that would live in infamy. There were those that day who went to work in the Twin Towers in New York City that had plans for that evening. Some of them perhaps were going to meet friends in the city for dinner. Some perhaps were going to take off early and go celebrate some special event with their spouse. Some were going to perhaps take off early and go watch their children play soccer or football or some other activity that afternoon. Like so many other days, it was just another day at the office. But for nearly 3,000 people, it was their last day at the office. Let's come a little closer to home. It's been almost two weeks ago that we had a young deputy sheriff who lost his life in a tragic automobile accident. He was only 25 years old. It was his second day on the job. He'd worked the night shift. As he made his way home that morning, he no doubt had plans for later that day. It may have been nothing more than mowing the lawn. It may have been nothing more than going somewhere to get supper. But he had plans. But those plans, along with his life, were cut short. Life is fragile. Someday, I don't know when it will be, but someday, the sun is going to come rising over the eastern hills. And I won't be here to enjoy it. I won't be here to see its beauty and I won't be here to bask in its warmth. The birds are going to be singing their songs in the treetops. 
serenading the, the earth early in the morning and I'm not going to hear them. The flowers are going to perfume the air with their sweet fragrances and I'm not going to enjoy it. Because someday, I'll keep an appointment that the writer of Hebrews tells us about in Hebrews 9 verse 27. It's appointed unto man once to die. And then comes the judgment. Most of us don't give that a lot of thought though, do we? Most of us don't give a lot of thought to death or dying. I mean, let's face it, it's not one of the most top ten pleasant things to think about. But most of us act as though we have a long-term lease on life. We live as though we've attained some kind of immunity. As though somehow the cold, clammy hand of death is not ever going to be really laid on our hearts. Beloved, that's a foolish attitude for us to take about an inevitability. You see, death is life's greatest. Perhaps it's only certainty. And yet then, when we think about death, and when we think about dying, what is there to fear? Just a few weeks ago, we talked about heaven and why I want to go there. A place that John describes in terms that are more beautiful and pleasant than anything we could possibly imagine. He talks about gates of pearl, one single pearl, streets paved with gold, walls of jasper. What could be a more pleasant place than that? A place where there's no tears, no death, no dying. What could be more pleasant for the Christian than to contemplate what is waiting for us after this life is over? Because here we have pain and we have partings. Here we have tears and we have tragedies. Here we have work and we have weariness. We have heartaches. We have disillusionments. We grow old. Our eyes dim. Our hair turns gray or it turns loose or it does both. And desperately, we try to find some cream or some lotion or something that can camouflage the betraying years. That's why I want us to think about something for a few minutes this morning. If the introduction takes that long, just think how long we're going to be here. I want us to think about the thought of the idea this morning of death. Then what? What's going to happen? In the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, verses 19 through 31, we have a story that's familiar to all Bible readers. Jesus tells there the story of the rich man in Lazarus. And it's a story that's so familiar to all of us, I'm not going to take the time to read it. But it's a story that illustrates the striking difference in men's lives. It's the story of a certain rich man. Tradition tells us his name was Dives. 
He was clothed in purple and fine linen. And he fared sumptuously, it says, every day. Every day for this man brought forth some fresh new delight. In his life, one magnificent thing followed another in rapid succession. That as far as life was concerned for him, his cup was filled to overflowing. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. We're talking custom-made suits and shirts here, folks. We're not talking about something off the rack at Dillard's when they're having their 65% off sale. We're talking the good stuff here. He fared sumptuously every day. That doesn't mean Vienna sausage and cheese and crackers and a little Debbie oatmeal pie. We're talking two-inch thick porterhouse steaks here. We're talking beef tenderloin. We're talking lobster and crab cakes. And we're talking about crab legs. You price those things lately? And we're talking delicate pastries. And we're talking rich gooey desserts. Every material desire of this man's heart is being luxuriously met. And then the text also tells us there was a certain beggar there by the name of Lazarus. A poor, wretched man. A man that was infirm and lying on the ground. Begging just for the crumbs that came from this rich man's table. In Lazarus, we see external misery in its most desperate form. A man that's enduring trouble on top of trouble on top of trouble. The only source of comfort Lazarus had in his life was the touch of the dog's tongue that came and licked the sores on his wretched body. As Jesus continues the story, He tells us that it came to pass the beggar died. And when the beggar Lazarus died, he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. It says the rich man also died. And he was buried. I'm sure that that rich man's funeral was a big affair in his town, his city. I'm sure that all the important people turned out. I'm sure that there was a front page article in the Light Champion about this rich man and his passing. It was an elaborate affair. I'm sure there were a lot of tears that were shed. There was probably little, if any notice at all that Lazarus died. He was buried in some pauper's field. Nobody there to attend the funeral except a grave digger and mortician. But while Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, Jesus says the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torment. Now before I talk about what's going to happen after death, I want to talk about some things that will not happen after death. I will not have an opportunity to make things right with God. Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter 12 about a rich man who's Crops brought forth abundantly. And as he harvested that abundant crop, he said, what will I do? I have no place to bestow all my goods. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll tear down my old barns 
And I'll build greater barns, and I'll say to my soul, Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God had different plans. God said, Thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall all these things be which thou possesses? He had no more opportunity to make things right with God. It says the rich man died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he said, Father Abraham, he sees Lazarus afar off in Father Abraham's bosom. Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Let him dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in these flames. You remember the story? Son, remember. Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things and Lazarus evil things. Now he's comforted and you're tormented. That is going to be one of the greatest agonies of hell. We will have our memory. We'll have memories of lost opportunities. We'll have memories of unkind words that we've said. We'll have memories of unkind deeds that we've done. We'll have memories that we were not Christ-like in our lives. We'll have memories of things we failed to do. He said, son, remember, in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus evil things. Now he's comforted and thou art tormented. And then he goes on, he said, and besides that, there's a great gulf fixed. There's this great chasm that's fixed. So that they that would go from here to you cannot, and they that would come from where you are to here cannot. That great chasm, it says, was fixed. It was put there. It was there on purpose to separate those two different kinds of life. So after he can't do anything for himself, he says, Oh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back to my father's house. I've got five brothers. I want him to go back and warn them. I don't want them coming where I am. Well, he found out it was too late for personal evangelism. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, oh no, Father Abraham. He knew his brothers. He knew they were just like he was. He said, Father Abraham, they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets. But if somebody went back from the dead, they'd listen to him. He said, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded if one goes back from the dead either. We're going to have our memories in hell. That's what's going to happen after death. Something that is going to happen after death too is a resurrection and a judgment. Paul talks about that resurrection in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said, But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those also that sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. 
For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them that are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. When Paul was preaching at Athens in Acts chapter 17 verse 31, Paul says God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, it's appointed to man once to die. And then comes the judgment. There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a separation. Just like that rich man and Lazarus were separated, that great gulf was fixed and they couldn't cross over to it. Jesus pictures that great separation in that judgment parable of Matthew chapter 25. And when Jesus talks about it there, He talks about that those on the right hand. He shall say to them, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What did we do, Lord? I was hungry, You fed me. I was thirsty, You gave me drink. I was a stranger, You took me in naked and clothed me. And He goes on. And then He says He's going to turn to those on the left hand. And He's going to say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And he's going to say, when did we see you this way? He says, I want you to depart from me. I want you to depart, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. But the righteous, the life eternal. Those that were sent to everlasting punishment, what great sins were they guilty of? Were they guilty of murder? Were they guilty of adultery? Were they guilty of robbing and stealing? No. Their sin was simply a failure to live God's kind of life. Nothing could be plainer than the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. After death, just like we talked a few weeks ago, there's going to be a heaven, there's going to be a hell. There's no door number three. Death is the gateway to glory for the Christian. In Revelation 22 and verse 14, before John put aside his pen of inspiration on Patmos, John wrote, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they might have a right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. Death is a door to condemnation for the wicked. Again, John writes in Revelation 22.15, For without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth 
and maketh alive. You see, Jesus has commanded that we live His kind of life. Jesus has commanded that we come to Him in simple trusting faith. That we repent of everything that's sin in our lives. Confess His name before men and be buried in the waters of baptism for the washing away of those past sins. And that will make us a Christian. Nothing more. Nothing less. Nothing else. Just a simple New Testament Christian. You know, I like to envision that judgment scene. And maybe it's an oversimplification. Maybe God will understand my illustration. But growing up every Saturday night, we watched Perry Mason. That was my mother's favorite television show. And maybe I've watched one Perry Mason episode too many. But when I envision the scene, the judgment scene, I envision God sitting majestically in His throne, His throne, like the judge in the courtroom. And I'm sitting there at the defense table. It says the books will be opened and we'll give an account of everything we've done. And oh my goodness, when he opens that book and start reading mine, we're going to be there a while. Don't laugh too hard. We're going to be there a while for some of y'all's too. But we're going to be there a while. And he's going to start reading out all the things I've done wrong. And my head's just going to drop more and more and more. And I'm going to sit there by the time he's through probably sobbing. But there at the defense table with me is going to be Jesus. He's my attorney. And he's going to stand up and he's going to put his hand on my shoulder. He's going to say, Tim, I got this. And he's going to look God in the eye and say, Father, everything you read is true. And to everything you've read, Tim pleads guilty. But he and I have an arrangement. Many years ago, he obeyed what I told him to do. And because of my sacrifice on the cross, Father, and because of his obedience, he's absolved from those sins. And the judge is going to say, Enter thou in to the joys of our Lord. When all the great plants of our cities have turned out their last finished work, when the merchants have sold their last yard of silk and dismissed the tired, weary clerk, when the banks have taken in their last dollar and declared their last dividend, when the judge of the world says closed for the night and asks for a balance, what then? When the chorus has sung its last anthem and the preacher has said his last prayer, when the people have heard their last sermon and the sound dies out on the air, when the Bible lies closed on the altar, 
And the pews are all empty of men. And we all stand facing the record and the great book is opened. What then? When the actor has played his last drama. And the mimic has made his last fun. When the film has played its last picture and the billboard displayed its last run. When the crowds seeking pleasure have vanished and gone out into the darkness again. When the trumpet of all ages is sounded and we all stand before God. What then? When the bugle's last call sinks in silence and the long marching rose shall stand still. When the captain has given his last orders and they've captured the last fort and hill. When the flag has been called from the masthead and all wounded soldiers checked in. When the world that's rejected a Savior is asked for a reason, what then? It's His invitation as we stand while we sing.